lecturing has become a sort of whipping boy in higher education especially. We tend to blame something that goes wrong in higher education on the lecture. There are literally hundreds of studies out that show very clearly that active learning is simply more effective for achieving pretty much any educational outcome you would care about. If lecturing is storytelling, I'm all for it. Instead of pushing content, I give them the pieces, I ask them to put it together and show me what does this look like to you, and then I evaluate that. Some people might think the lecture is dead, but I don't think it's dead. I think there's still great value to the lecture. From IDEA, this is Sound IDEA. We've heard the lecture is dead and active learning is key, but others have pushed back, claiming that the lecture has worked just fine since the beginning of formal learning, and the rift has created opposing pedagogical camps on some campuses and across disciplines. It's active learning versus the lecture in this edition of Sound Idea. I'm David Pollack. For some people, there is no debate. Lecturing is an outdated and relatively ineffective way to teach, while others contend that it has worked just fine for hundreds of years. The current vogue of active learning is just a trend at best, or a fad at worst, that is taking unnecessary time and energy from faculty. Okay, everybody, let's get started. Remember, your first major exam is on Monday. On a recent spring day at Kansas State University, Mick Charty, Associate Professor of Architecture, opens his History of the Designed Environment class. And it will cover everything up through today's lecture. There's really only one, maybe two other buildings I want to talk about before your exam, and that'll be it. Charney's class is large, nearly 150 students. They sit in an auditorium-style lecture hall with a big screen at the front of the room, Charney stands to the side of it as he presents a number of impressive images of the buildings and concepts he describes. Here's what we think it looked like in a digital reconstruction when it did serve as a temple to all the gods. And you can see these niches quite clearly fronted by pairs of columns that create columnar screens. But between those niches, there were tabernacle-like architectural elements, sorts of tabernacles which had statues of the seven planetary gods. This ability to stand in front of students in real time to describe elements of architectural history while also showing them specific images is important to Charney. Look at the rays of the sun as they come through the oculus of the Pantheon. This is the summer solstice here, there's the winter solstice way up there, and right here, every April 21st, at an angle of 60 degrees, is a shaft of light, which exactly at 12 noon will shine from the oculus onto the main entry of the Pantheon. This delivery of the knowledge from professor to student is a necessary part of the learning process, says Charney. It causes students, forces them in some sense, to really hone their own listening skills and to wrestle with ideas and concepts that they've never heard before, and to acquire the patience that's necessary to follow an idea all the way through uh, to its logical conclusion. 
left to their own devices through just reading a text or even active learning experiences, does not provide the instructor-guided introduction to content that is needed, he says. Well, I think especially with uh, introductory courses where the students virtually have no background in the material, it's important that they get a foundation of the basic information and facts. So I think at the beginning levels, the, the introductory uh, first-year levels, it's important that they be able to sit there and listen to admittedly a one-sided discussion and take in the information. But Charney is hardly unaware of how traditional lecture has fallen out of favor. I know there's a big debate going on and there are polar opposite positions about whether or not active learning is more effective than traditional lecturing. And lecturing has become a sort of whipping boy in higher education especially. We tend to blame something that goes wrong in higher education on the lecture. The students aren't learning this, that, or the other thing. It's the fault of the lecture. I've just heard some outrageous statements about lectures. The one I recall the most is somebody who stood up in a session and said, the lecture is dead. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Dead? He said, we ought to abandon it entirely. Some people might think the lecture is dead, but I don't think it's dead. I think there's still great value to the lecture. There are literally hundreds of studies out that show very clearly that active learning is simply more effective for achieving pretty much any educational outcome you would care about with pretty much any type of learner than traditional instruction. Michael Prince is professor of chemical engineering at Bucknell University and a researcher, and you might say an evangelist for active learning. Asking the question, is is active learning more effective than traditional lectures? That is no longer an interesting research question. That question has been asked and answered hundreds and hundreds of times, and the results are both consistent and compelling. But Prince is quick to say that lecturing is not inherently bad. Proponents of active learning, such as myself, don't think that lectures are evil or lectures are bad. Uh, Lectures are simply one of many educational tools. So what we feel is that lecturing is not evil, but it's overused. People who lecture all the time are like people who only use a hammer. And, you know, hammers are good for some things, but hammers are not good for some things. The problem, Prince says, is that faculty feel compelled to cover the content of the course. It's freeing to recognize that, you know, my job as an instructor is not to cover material. The point of teaching is not coverage. The point of teaching is learning. And so when you can show people that, By talking just a little bit less, students will actually learn a significant amount more. It tends to at least open people to the possibility that they could try a few minor things. But this covering of material, as Prince calls it, is good pedagogy, says Charney, and is superior to other forms of delivery, like providing students with recorded lectures. I just think there's something about the dynamics, the face-to-face of a person physically there in a classroom interacting with the material that's being presented through voice intonations and gestures and expressions uh, and pregnant pauses that uh, allow the student to have time within the lecture to reflect. Without that sort of dynamic, person-to-person dynamic, if a student were just to sit there on their own to listen to a recorded lecture, I think there's so many distractions that they encounter at home that I'm wondering about the effectiveness of that approach. Prince would agree that the lecture is not dead, but it has to be used appropriately, he says. The lecture should be one tool of many 
and faculty should recognize that in general students will learn more from their class if they think of lecturing as something to do sometimes but not all the time and break their lecture up into more digestible chunks and do more to figure out what students are learning and where they're confused. Across the country at Portland State University in Oregon, Jennifer Kearns teaches U.S. history and spends a good bit of time lecturing. Look at the language. The first civil right of every American was to be free of violence. But a colleague convinced her that saving time at the end of a lecture for students to grapple with the day's content in discussion would lead to greater retention and understanding. And that just made a lot of sense to me. So he suggested that you do it at the end of the uh, typical sort of hour lecture. But I thought it would be better to do it after, you know, you sort of cover a subtopic. So students come to class having read the text and some original documents, and Kearns lectures on subtopics for about 20 minutes, and then she stops for a discussion activity. Let's just think of Portland Metro. If you wanted to desegregate the region schools, but did not have to consider the suburbs by court order, how would that play out in terms of integration? Students divide into pairs or small groups to grapple with the question. basically just contradicting where, you know, they're just already going to be segregated. Exactly. It's still going to keep that, you know, where African Americans only make up like 5% of the school while the majority are white. You're not fixing the problem. And if you're not including the suburbs, what are they going to do? Bus around the city? Like, it's kind of hard to think about how that would have worked in the sense of like, you're not really moving people from one place to another. You're keeping people in their like pre-segregated districts. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not working. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't make sense. I think they're engaging with some of the ideas that are introduced by that. And that's enhancing critical thinking, and so I'm happy for them to have critical thinking moments. Back at Kansas State University, Michael Wesch, known for his engaging and innovative teaching, has just opened class with an activity in which students are literally moving about the room. But then he segues to mostly lecture for the majority of the class. I want to like sort of title this first section, uh, How to Get Rich. And this is for those of you who like asked me how you make lots of money (laughs) this last time. But the answer will be different than you think. Uh, So here's how you get rich. This is all in play, of course, but basically what happened was I was sitting in a class like this and we were studying New Guinea in an anthropology class and the first love of my life broke up with me and I started to think, man, it'd be great to just get away (laughs) and like go to this place. And this is one of those examples of like where an obstacle becomes an opportunity. And I started like daydreaming about going to New Guinea and really just kind of starting over. Learning is always going to be active, but that doesn't mean a lecture can't inspire that kind of action. So when I lecture, I try to tell stories that are very personal, emotional, and inspiring with the idea that it will inspire active learning later. So did you go out there just on a whim, or did you go out there like as a project for anthropology? So the question is, did I go out there on a whim or for a project for anthropology? So I went out there on a whim, pretending it was a project for anthropology. (laughs) I really got this from some of my own professors growing up, just realizing that, you know, you could walk into a lecture, and when you walk out, you can't not talk about it. 
And so that's where the active learning was happening, right? For Wesh, the difference between a good use of lecture and an ineffective one comes down to purpose. Using them primarily to convey information is not the most effective use, he says. I think lecture instead should be all about inspiration rather than information, making connections and demonstrating to your students the joy of thinking and, and, and making connections through the material. The power of the lecture, he argues, comes not from delivering content, but storytelling. If lecturing is storytelling, I'm all for it. I'm, most of my lectures are essentially, usually, if it's a 50-minute lecture, it'll be 12 to 15 stories strung together. And there are, like, there's science behind this. You know, I mean, we know that People remember about 63% of what they hear in stories and only 5% of what they see um, supported with, uh, with numbers. So stories are very powerful. They speak to us in, on a number of levels. And most importantly, I think they inspire deep learning. And this is the key to me is like that superficial learning where they're just memorizing terms has very little use and has very short lifespan. So what exactly is active learning and how can it and the lecture coexist? Active learning is a broad umbrella term for a whole variety of teaching techniques. And what all those techniques have in common is there are two elements. First, the instructor asks the students in their class to do something, some activity, other than listen to them uh, lecture and take notes. And the second element is whatever the instructor asks them to do, has to get students to think about or engage with the material. But just doing some kind of activity is not the point, says Prince. Activity in and of itself doesn't, doesn't necessarily learn to memory or learning. Right? And some people, when they think about active learning, just they focus on the activity and think, if I just give these kids something active to do, they'll learn something. And that's just not true. The activity is secondary. The point of the activity is to get the students to think and engage. If the activity gets them to think and engage about what you want them to learn, it's a good activity. If it's just an activity that doesn't do that, it's a bad activity. So for example, if I'm teaching thermodynamics and I ask my class to stand up and stretch, that might be a nice activity, but it's not active learning. That is, there's nothing about the activity that gets students to think about or engage with thermodynamics. So, so if it has those two elements, it is active learning. And if it doesn't have those two elements, it is not. Simply stopping a lecture for a few minutes, Prince says, and asking students to write down their muddiest point, or presenting a question based on lecture content and having students come up with an answer in pairs, presents opportunity for engaging with the content in a less passive way than just individually taking notes. I think the reality is that most types of active learning are neither terribly complex nor all that impressive when you hear people describe them. What's impressive is the difference in learning that you see with these techniques. Again, most of the techniques I think come across as is almost trivially simple. And the question that faculty have is, honestly, Mike, you know, is, is, is stopping for 90 seconds twice in the class and asking students to do this activity, is it really going to make any difference at all? And I think the surprising thing for most faculty is when you look at the data, the answer is, yeah, it does. That's the part that's impressive rather than the sophistication of the technique itself. But what about those large lecture foundational classes where a lot of content needs to be learned in a limited time and professors do feel compelled to explain or cover all the content? Ashley Rhodes teaches biology at Kansas State University in one of those large lecture courses. That. We're going to continue wherever we left off yesterday. Uh, yesterday I began by discussing the differences between 
But rather than just presenting the information, Rhodes builds into each class time for students to work out some of the content for themselves. I'm going to give you a sort of a skeleton drawing um, of a cell. And with this, I want to see how much can you tell me about how we would make a protein in this cell, right? So I'm going to ask... What I'm going to ask them to do is use the information we learned last week to finish this drawing. And then we're going to go through the steps of protein production. And we're going to break those processes and see how diseases can develop. But they don't get any more than just this right here. And they have to work together in pairs to finish this drawing. Students take the partially completed drawing of the process they are discussing, either on their computer or a printed copy, and can work alone or with others to complete the drawing that explains the biological process they are learning. I'm going to give you probably um, five, seven minutes to do this. I think you can do it in five minutes. So the pre-mRNA can either exit the nucleus and go straight into the rough ER, and it can go through translation there to a vesicle, or it can go straight into the cytosol and find right, a free ribosome. If it goes, if it goes into go. a free ribosome, then it's not going to go back into the rough ER, so that's no. going to stay in the cell. She said it wants, like it's going to be packaged to go out of the cell, so it's going to have to go into the rough ER, and then it's going to have to go and like make a form a vesicle and then go into the Golgi. Well, either way, the Golgi can send out the vesicles to, to trap the mRNA. And so that is a form of active learning, because I am a full believer that if you're drawing and thinking about what something looks like, you, you can't just drift off because your hand will stop moving. So there's some cognitive activity that has to occur in order for them to finish this. So they'll get time to work on this while I walk around, then we'll come back and I'll do it with them so they can check their answer, sort of fulfilling that feedback part of active learning, which I think is missing sometimes. Uh, and then we'll go on to the next one. Instead of pushing content, I give them the pieces, I ask them to put it together and show me what does this look like to you, and then I evaluate that. Really, the basis for active learning, and a lot of the reason why it works is most faculty with the best intentions in the world cover material at a level and at a pace that no 19-year-old brain can simply absorb and master. And in active learning, what, what we're really doing is pausing every so often and giving students a chance to make sense of and digest the information that we've just delivered before they move on. So even proponents of active learning, at least some of them, are not saying that the lecture as a teaching method is completely dead, as some have said. The lecture is not dead, nor should it be. But it's overused, says Prince, and there are active learning techniques that can help students learn more effectively, as long as those techniques are well done, says Prince. There are plenty of activities that don't lead to any learning at all. The point of active learning is they get students to actively engage and think. So if you ask students to do an intriguing, relevant activity that gets them to think, that's, that's good active learning. If you just give them something trivial to do, that's not good active learning. And students will rightly say that's a waste of time because it is. So both the lecture and active learning can be used poorly, but just maybe when done well, they can both contribute to learning. Even our defender of the traditional lecture has compromised some. I've also changed my attitude towards lecture. And so today, last few years especially, I don't lecture straight, uh, unbroken. Um, I pepper my lectures with questions. Um, I can lecture some periods, some sessions, all the way through. And other sessions, I like to involve the students. So it's not purely lecture, but it isn't 100% active learning either. 
It seems clear that most leaders in teaching and learning would argue that the lecture is not the best way to teach students in most situations if just conveying content is the intent of the lecture. But throwing the baby out with the bathwater, labeling the lecture as the practice of -of out-of-touch professors, seems to be going too far. The lecture can have its place in many courses when used appropriately. Moving some faculty toward a more appropriate use of the lecture is still a challenge for some, and getting faculty to use active learning methods when and where they will do the most good is also a continuing challenge. Check out our resources and links for active learning and send us your thoughts about this podcast or other ideas for topics. For Idea, I'm David Pollock.